You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. I say this as the son of a cop. I say this as the brother of a cop, the nephew of a cop. Fuck the police. Oh my God, that was not easy for me to say. I love my dad, who never once pulled his service revolver out of its holster during his two decades as a cop in Chicago. And I love my brother, a thoroughly decent guy, who has managed to keep his knee off the neck of everyone in the small but racially diverse town where he works. But I gotta say... I gotta say it right now, fuck the police. I've been watching video all weekend of police officers firing tear gas and flash grenades into peaceful crowds, of police officers pepper spraying children, of police officers assaulting protesters, arresting journalists, firing rubber bullets at news photographers, terrorizing the people who gathered this week at great personal risk to protest the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Another black man murdered by a cop, which came shortly after the attempted murder by cop of Christopher Cooper in Central Park, which came not long after the murder of Breonna Taylor in Louisville, Kentucky. Taylor was an EMT technician who was shot to death by the cops in her own bed after police officers stormed into her apartment in a no-knock raid. They were searching for a man who not only did not live in Brianna Taylor's apartment complex, but who was already in police custody. The scales did not suddenly fall from my eyes this weekend. The problem with the police all over the country has been evident for years, decades, centuries. George Floyd's death, his murder, came after the murders of Eric Garner, Philando Castile, Trayvon Martin, Mike Brown, Tamir Rice, John Crawford, and on and on and on. Police reform, not my area of expertise, but even I can see that the militarization of police departments all over the country over the last two decades has made our cities more dangerous for us all, but particularly more dangerous, particularly deadly for black people. We have to identify officers who've come to see themselves as soldiers or been trained to see themselves as soldiers and citizens as enemy combatants and weed them out. We need to fire them before they kill someone, not after. We have to make it easier to fire all bad cops. We have to take their armored vehicles away. We have to take their stormtrooper-style body armor away. We have to take their tear gas and rubber bullets and flashbang grenades away. The shelves at Target can be restocked. The Cheesecake Factory can bake more cakes. And the windows at Nordstrom, Jenny Durkin, they can be replaced. Charlena Lyles, a Seattle woman who was 15 weeks pregnant and struggling with mental health issues, when the police shot her seven times in front of her children, she cannot be replaced. George Floyd, Brianna Taylor, they can't be replaced either. That's all I really wanted to say. That and sorry, not sorry, Dad, because it really had to be said right now at this moment. Fuck the police had to be said. And I felt obligated as a son of a cop to say it. And quickly to my fellow white gays out there, happy pride. It's June, but there won't be any parades this year, no parties, no late nights out in clubs. So maybe read a book, an actual book from an actual library, not the 
figurative library RuPaul is always talking about, Stonewall was a riot. That's what we commemorate during Pride. Not rainbows, not marriage, not corporate sponsorships and other kinds of blowjobs. No, we march to remember a riot and the rioters at that riot, many of them people of color who fought back against the police. The Stonewall Inn wasn't the first gay bar that got raided by the cops, and it wasn't the last. The Eagle in Atlanta was raided by the police in 2009, and it took two years for the cops who orchestrated that raid and then lied about it to lose their jobs. Also, Stonewall wasn't the only time gay people rioted to protest police violence. Queers rioted at the Compton Cafeteria in San Francisco when the police came in and tried to arrest, quote, men dressed as women. After the former cop who murdered Harvey Milk was given a slap on the wrist, we rioted. Please go Google White Knight Riots and take a long look at that line of burning cop cars. If gay history were taught in our schools, we would know it in our bones. We would know that this fight, the fight against police violence, the reason cop cars are burning in our streets again, it's our fight too. All right, coming up on today's show, on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, lots of your cues, lots of my A's, and Dr. Barack Gaster returns to answer a very important COVID-19 question for us. And more questions, more answers on the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. The Magnum Savage Lovecast, twice as much show, no ads, more guests. Subscribe at savagelovecast.com. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. I'm a queer lady from the Midwest, and I have a quarantine sex story, and it was absolutely wonderful. And it was with this guy I had sex with once pre-quarantine, and it was entirely remote. So it started with some heavy sexting and a few nudes, and then I told him I'm going to take a bath, and he asked if he could join me. And then we both sent each other pictures and videos of us in our own bath, playing around, having a good time. And then he said he had a butt plug with the remote and he wants me to take control. And I was just playing along because I thought it was just a playful part of our little imaginary fun. But then he sends me a link and I click on it and it's a little button that I can move up or down and it remotely controls the intensity of his butt plug. And it was so awesome. And we live miles away from each other and it works. And I think that was just so perfect for quarantine sex because I haven't had sex in person with anyone since shutdown started. And I just wanted all your listeners to know about this, especially for the folks who are single or missing their FWBs or for the polyam folks missing their pals. You don't need to have sex in person to have a good fucking time. Thank you for calling in and sharing your really hot, really fun quarantine sex story. They call them teledildonics, those remotely remote controlled Vibrators. This isn't a dildo. Teledildonics sort of infers dildo. This is a tele-butt-plugonics. Sounds like you had a blast, though. Thank you again for sharing. If you want your quarantine, fun, sexy time story to open the Savage Lovecast next week, give us a call, 206-302-2064, and share your quarantine sex story. Dan Savage, I am a 33-year-old uh, guy, a bisexual man in Iowa, and tell me if I'm going crazy, but what if... Uh, So, like, the COVID thing, it comes in through the eyes, nose, mouth. What if you have a hookup where you go over to someone's apartment, you're basically wearing a gas mask. I just bought a gas mask, so that's exactly what I'd be wearing. They're wearing a COVID mask, uh, maybe their own gas mask, whatever. Uh, You order them to get naked because it'd be a dom-sub thing. 
They get uh, naked except for the face mask. Maybe you tie them to a bed. Then you uh, clean them with soap and water. Where uh, you know around around uh, the, the the downstairs area, and then um, you take your mask off. Maybe even wipe your own face down first, and then you go down on them. Maybe you know other stuff that's safe-ish right now, like whips, bamboo all things that would be negotiated beforehand. But my point is, am I going crazy or is this uh, just crazy enough to work, you know, to not catch it? You know, they're wearing a mask. You only take yours off to to, to get business done. And then maybe you, whoever's place you're at, the other person leaves, takes a shower. The other person takes a shower too. And then you can meet up, uh, you know, and hang out uh, a little bit more uh, six feet away from each other. We've touched on the gas mask issue before. If you're entering someone's space and wearing a mask, it's probably safer than entering someone's space and not wearing a mask. But the issue is exhalation and inhalation. The issue is you know, removing the mask and then breathing all over that person if that's what you're planning to do, if you want to blow them. Yeah, probably safer than blowing them if they weren't wearing a mask, but it's not safe. We know now that most infections occur in enclosed spaces where one person who's infected is breathing, exhaling micro particles, droplets of the virus and they're floating around in the air and other people in that room are inhaling. And if you're having sex, just like if you're as it happened here in Washington State, rehearsing for a chorus performance, you're going to be exhaling and inhaling rapidly. And that seems to be a contributing factor for getting infected. So even if you're careful donning and doffing your masks and your rubber suits and showering and wiping down, it's not 100% safe. It is, of course, probably a little bit safer. But if you're engaged in impact play, say you're going to flog somebody, you're going to breathe heavily. You're going to work up a sweat. You're going to fill that room with whatever's in your lungs. So hours later, after you've left, if they removed their mask, if you had COVID and you've been exhaling it all over the room and you may be asymptomatic, not think you have it, but have it and be at your most infectious state, they could get it. So yeah, safer by some marginal degree, but I'm sorry, I can't declare it what you're planning or proposing safe. Hi, Dan. I'm a 42-year-old woman living in Sydney, Australia, and I have a little girl who is 11 years old. She has expressed to me that she is queer um, and she's still working out whether she's bisexual or lesbian. And I've been fully supportive and open in allowing her to express herself, to talk to me about um, her feelings and to feel safe and supported by giving her access to resources and also mixing with members of the LGBTIQ community at age-appropriate events. I was looking at her iPad recently and she had um, logged on to site for LGBT youth in crisis and she had said that she was living at a friend's house because she'd been kicked out of home and she'd had suicidal thoughts and she'd been free from self-harm for eight months. This was all news to me. I'm really concerned about why she's doing this when she has such a supportive home and home structure. Um, I live with my fiancé and her father is in the picture and we're all very supportive of her sexuality and her lifestyle choices. We just want to make sure that she's having age-appropriate support and I want to make sure that she's not being harmed. 
I'm not quite sure what to do. I think we should take her to a professional, but I would like to also hear about what you think about it all, considering she comes from a really good and safe home and she's making up stories about having completely the opposite. So your 11-year-old is fantasizing about or projecting herself into the experience of queer kids whose families are not supportive because, and I'm just trying to read her mind here, she may think that that's more typical of a queer youth experience because kids who are bullied or abused in this way by their families are, are in crisis and they're centered in a way. It's centered in the conversation about queer youth and the crisis that queer youth often face. Or she is attracted to the heroics of that narrative. She's wasting the time of the people on these crisis hotlines or crisis websites and that's not okay. I wonder that when you say I was looking at her iPad recently – She's 11 years old. I would hope you have an agreement or an understanding, an explicit understanding with your child that you are allowed to monitor her social media and her online presence and look at her iPad. And if so, I think you should just talk to her about this. It's going to be embarrassing. It's going to be an awkward conversation. But you should ask her why she is saying these things that are not true to these crisis counselors. And maybe she was just doing it for attention, for empathy, for understanding, whatever it might be, you should ask her about it. She's obviously lying about not having a supportive family. Fingers crossed, hopefully she's lying about having suicidal ideation and hopefully she's lying about engaging in acts of self-harm. But you have to take that shit seriously. There are lots of examples out there of queer youth who have taken their own lives at 12, 13, 14, 15, who had supportive family because they were in crisis or in despair and had linked it to their sexuality or was linked to their sexuality or being bullied by other people or they're just getting a lot of really negative messaging from the mass culture that's overwhelming whatever supportive messaging or supportive reality they're getting from their family. So you do need to intervene there and err on the side of taking that shit seriously, even if she denies it, which means getting her in to see a counselor. She's obviously been doing this for attention. She may think faking a crisis is the only way to get attention from people outside of her immediate family circle and get support from people who don't maybe in her mind owe her that support. And so she's been doing this, get her the support of a professional, somebody outside of her immediate family. And hopefully it will meet that need that she clearly has for that kind of attention and support. And she will know that she can ask for it and get it without claiming to have been victimized in ways that she is not being victimized or failed by her family. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth, 28-year-old cis woman here from the Mid-Atlantic. I identify as bisexual, but I definitely have a preference for cis men. Yesterday, I tried eating out a woman for the first time. I'd been eaten out by women before. I love kissing. I love, you know fucking with strap-ons, but I'd never eaten up a woman before, and I didn't like it, and I feel kind of guilty about it. I am more of a phallophile. I prefer penises over vaginas, but I don't have a problem, like, fingering or fucking. I just don't know if I need to feel bad for not liking to eat pussy. All right. If you were a straight guy and you liked getting your dick sucked, but you didn't like eating your girlfriend's pussy— 
According to the protocols of the elders of advice columning and advice podcasting, I would have to declare you an asshole. You're a bisexual woman. You enjoy getting with other women. You enjoy making out with other women. You enjoy having your pussy eaten by other women. You enjoy fingering other women. You enjoy uh, strap-on sex with other women. I don't think that you're not wanting to eat pussy means you're not really, truly bisexual. That wasn't your question. You didn't float that. But I'm sure that popped into the minds of some other people out there listening. You like 90% of girl-on-girl action. You just don't like, as you have now discovered – Eating pussy. Why might that be? Considering you like touching pussy and fucking pussy and making out and rolling around with women and tits too, I assume. Why might that be? Well, some people just don't like performing oral. There are lots of people out there who like to be orally serviced and don't like performing oral. And it's not just straight guys with dicks who like to get their dick sucked who don't like to eat pussy. I've met gay guys who like to get sucked off and don't particularly like sucking dick themselves. And what you have to do if you're one of those people who isn't an asshole is be kind and compassionate and considerate about that and maybe not partner with someone who really likes to be orally serviced or have a little reciprocity in the oral area. And that means not partnering with someone who wants reciprocity where oral is concerned or or needs or requires oral. And there are people out there who could take or leave oral or really don't like it. The issue here, though, when you talk about oral sex in women is so many women get these messages that their vaginas are, are dirty or ugly or their labia are too big and they're very self-conscious about being gone down on. And so there are lots of women out there who say they don't like oral and what they're just expressing is their own discomfort with their body or projecting their discomfort under their partner and they're, they feel grossed out about their own genitalia because they've succumbed to all this horrible messaging and they assume their partner will be just as disgusted as they are by their genitalia if they let them get – Nose to twat with it. And so you really have to sit with this and interrogate your own discomfort with oral. Obviously, you're not one of those women who thinks your vagina is gross or disgusting. You don't want people eating it or getting too close to it because you let men and women eat your pussy. And I would just challenge you before you just decide performing cunnilingus isn't something that I enjoy and there's no deeper meaning there. It's just a simple like, dislike, preference, I would challenge you to really think through whether you have internalized to some small degree all of that shitty cultural messaging about vaginas and that is why you didn't enjoy eating that pussy that one time you tried. Maybe try again. Give it a couple of more shots before you remove it from your list of things that you're willing to do with female partners. But then be really upfront about it. You don't want to wind up in bed with a woman who can only climax through oral sex, who's eaten your pussy and given you three orgasms and then turn around and say, yep, none for you. You want to make sure that you're winding up in bed with women who enjoy strap-on sex, enjoy toys, enjoy vibrators, enjoy being fingered, enjoy eating pussy and get off in a million ways and not only don't require oral, but maybe don't even like it. Hey, Dan. I have a friend who is spending their quarantine in Singapore and he just sent a picture from some store kind of looked like a Walmart or something because it had all these different aisles. But he sent a picture of an aisle that was all sex toys. And he said 90% of the aisle was masturbation sleeves. And there was a very tiny section devoted to female sex toys. And he was like, that's weird because I sort of thought toys were most often for women. And that made me think that that is also sort of my impression of sex toys, even though 
men are the majority of the market for most sex-related things like porn. So I was wondering who buys more sex toys, men or women? That's a really interesting question, and I do not know the answer to it. I have some anecdotal data every time I've walked into a woman-owned, feminist, progressive sex toy shop, most of the toys seem to be for women. Vibrators, dildos, strap-ons. Of course, strap-ons can be used by men. Of course, vibrators can be used by men, and dildos certainly can be used by men. There's plenty of evidence for that all over the internet. But it does seem that most sex toys are made for women, And again, it depends, I think, on how you define sex toy. If you want to talk about all the things that can come under that header, you know, some people think a roll of duct tape is a sex toy. Who's buying most of the rolls of duct tape out there when they're being used as sex toys, men or women? Who knows? I don't think anyone's done the research. The sex toy shops I've been in, as opposed to the one your friend visited in Singapore, most of the things on the shelf seem to be for women, although available to and can be used also by men. There needs to be some research in this area. Maybe there's somebody out there right now listening who's done that research or is aware of it and they'd like to send it along to us here at the Savage Lovecast. We would appreciate it. Hey, Dan. I am a mid-40s white male living in a picture-perfect American suburb. I've been married for about 20 years and my wife and I have a couple of young children. For the most part, we've had a good and a stable marriage. However, about seven months ago, we went through a very difficult period of bitterness, fighting, recrimination, and resentment. We came to the cusp of separation and divorce. Ultimately, we pulled back from that because a divorce would have been financially ruinous and we wanted to maintain some stability for our young children. We went into marital therapy, which was very painful and very difficult, but it was necessary. And we talked through all of our problems and we've now come to a place where we are living together, um, raising our kids in partnership living in a low-conflict, mutually respectful environment, sharing meals together, going on trips together, living as a family together, and even sharing the occasional moment of humor and grace. The problem is, of course, there has been uh, no sex or there was no sex at all in our marriage during this very difficult period. I think both of us were too angry and resentful and stressed out And, of course, sex was the last thing on our minds. Then, about two months ago, quite unexpectedly, my wife initiated sex with me. And it was great. It was wonderful. She then subsequently initiated sex on a couple of different occasions, I'd say maybe four times over a six-week period. And it was great, and I kind of thought maybe things were getting back to normal. Then, one day, I initiated sex. And it was immediately as if the deflector shields came down and she rejected my advance, almost made me feel like I'd done something inappropriate or that I'd transgressed in some way. And I'm very confused about this. I want to try to understand why she would initiate sex on multiple occasions, but then when I initiate, she says no. Your insights into this would be greatly appreciated. 
And then the other question I have is that if we are going to have a platonic relationship now, is it okay for me to have an affair? And if so, how do I do that? How do I meet someone else? I wonder if you're not attaching too much importance to the one time you attempted to initiate sex recently and your wife rejected your past, rejected you initiating sex that time. The four times in the last six weeks she initiated sex, you wanted sex, you were ready for sex, you were interested and you were game. She, the one time you attempted to initiate sex, she wasn't up for it. Maybe she feels uncomfortable with you initiating sex. Maybe she's in denial about the state of your sex life. Maybe she wants to be the initiator and you guys haven't discussed that. Maybe in the past, earlier in your relationship, you initiated at moments that didn't work for her or seemed to her to be inconsiderate and maybe you fell back into that that one time. But it seems to me likelier that you're attaching too much meaning and importance to the one time you attempted to initiate recently and she wasn't up for it. You don't say that she told you that you did something wrong, you say that she, whatever she did, made you feel as if you had done something wrong. You obviously need to talk with her about what happened that one time and about your hurt feelings and not make assumptions about what it is she was trying to communicate to you at that moment. Maybe she was feeling bloated and gassy and didn't want to have sex and didn't want to say, I'm feeling bloated and gassy. Maybe there was something else going on. And if you had initiated the night before or the next morning or a day later, she would have been up for it. And just your timing was off. Maybe it was just a coincidence. The only person who knows the answers to these questions is your wife. And you're going to have to talk with her about, talk with her about them, talk with her about this incident without making it sound like a crime or something that's going to derail all the progress that you guys have made up to this point. So go to her in a non-accusatory way and say, I was really psyched that our sex life was coming back. I'm really happy about the four times in the last six weeks that you initiated sex and I felt the sex was really good for both of us. And I'm just concerned that at the time I tried to initiate sex, you weren't obviously feeling it and I want to know what was going on for you at that moment. If it was just a wrong time or I did something wrong or if where we're at right now in the relationship to feel safe, that I need to let you do the initiating and I need to wait and we're not to the point yet in healing our marriage where I'm going to get to be the initiator for reasons I would like you to unpack for me and explain to me so that I understand. I think that's how you should uh, approach this. It seems to me you're getting a little spun up, a little out over your skis about what this might mean. It just might mean that she had a burrito earlier that day and you didn't take that into account. Hi, Dan and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I'm calling about my five-year-old son. I believe that he has a foot fetish, which is okay, but I'm struggling how to support him now when he has no understanding of sex or sexuality. My son is a normal, happy, healthy kid until he sees a bare foot. It doesn't matter who the foot belongs to. If it's sockless, my kid loses his mind. He gets giddy, he loses self-control, and sees literally nothing except the foot. He also says that it makes his penis stand up and feel hot like a volcano. That was a quote. One issue that I've noticed lately is that he doesn't want to participate in anything where he has to take off his socks. We've had issues at gym class, 
birthday parties at trampoline parks. Um, and he actually refuses to go to judo or swimming because he says that he doesn't feel comfortable with, you know, seeing everyone's feet, but also taking off his own socks. I'm truly saddened that he will choose to miss out on class activities, parties, and extracurricular activities only because of his feelings around loving to see everyone else's feet while simultaneously refusing to take off his own socks because he doesn't want to show his feet. I'd love it if you could give me advice on these two specific issues. Number one, how can I talk to my five-year-old about sex, sexuality, and foot fetishes in an age-appropriate and supportive way? And number two, how do I get him comfortable with being around bare feet and acting appropriately so that he doesn't lose his mind or try to touch his friends or grandma's or whoever feet without consent? Based on everything I've read about the formation of fetishes and kinks, foot fetishes, other fetishes, it seems clear that your son is going to be a foot fetishist when he grows up. In some ways, he's already a foot fetishist. It seems counterintuitive that somebody would be really aware of their kinks before they're probably even aware of their sexual orientation. But the research, the data shows that kinks form early, often pre-puberty, and that people who are adult kinksters remember vibing on, if I can use that term, that's the term the kids are using. The kids will stop using that term as soon as they hear me use it, but vibing on whatever it was that was their fetish before they were aware of really what sex was, before they were aware of who their erotic targets would be as adults, who they would be attracted to. Jillian Keenan writes about this very movingly, that she was obsessed with spanking before she hit puberty, before she realized that before she knew who she was sexually attracted to. And, and for that reason, she regards her kink as a sexual orientation unto itself and one that goes to perhaps an even deeper place than her romantic or sexual orientations. So your kid is probably going to be a foot fetishist when he grows up. Feet will continue to make his dick feel like a volcano all his life. It could become for him in adulthood – a source of tremendous pleasure, a way to connect to people. It'll bring people and experiences into his life that wouldn't enter his life without this particular fetish. A lot of people regard fetishes as a kind of tragedy, and it can seem like a burden to parents who are struggling with a kid who's got an emerging kink or a kid who's struggling with that who feels freakish or isolated. And then you jump 5, 10, 15 years into the future – and that same foot fetishist or whatever other kind of fetishist is partnered with somebody that they love who shares their kink, two people who would not have come together but for that fetish. And it can bring joy, connection, intimacy into a person's life, sometimes in unexpected ways. But what do you do with the five-year-old who's freaking out about grandma's feet? What do you do with the five-year-old who won't take his socks off? How do you have that age-appropriate conversation well, you got to have it. You don't want to shame your kid about this, but your kid has to learn how to comport himself so he doesn't – but your kid has to learn how to control himself to avoid being shamed or, or socially ostracized. And he is acutely aware already of the risks. That's why he doesn't want to be around kids in swim class or judo or wherever people are bearing their feet. And I think you're going to have to 
allow for that. We can allow for a five-year-old to have their obsessions and be a little weird. There are five-year-olds who won't leave the house without wearing their Spider-Man costume or their Superman cape, and they are often accommodated, and people just sort of shrug and say, yeah, kids, kids can be oddly obsessed about stuff and be weird about it, and we allow for it. I'm not saying that you should ask people to allow for your kid to drool over their feet or handle or fondle them, but allowing for your kid to not take their socks off at judo seems to be something that you could talk to the teacher about and ask for an exception because your kid just has this weird thing about not wanting to be barefoot right now and hopefully he'll outgrow it. But the conversation, the much trickier conversation is the one you need to have with your kid. And I think you can tell your kid that, yeah, different body parts make different people feel the way that feet make him feel. And one of the things that we have to do, all of us, is control that, is not stifle it. You know, it's ours and we can enjoy it. We can enjoy it privately. We can have it in our thoughts. But it makes other people uncomfortable. If you stare or touch them in ways that demonstrate that, you know, this particular body part is your favorite and is exciting for you and your penis. So you have to learn how to keep that private. But that is something right now that you can enjoy inside your own head, that you can enjoy privately, but it's not something that you can enjoy with grandma. And that's going to be a little hard for him to hear, perhaps hard for him to understand. But I promise you, as he grows and gets a little older, he will learn to navigate this, to avoid the social costs and consequences of not being able to control himself around other people's feet. You know, you talk to people who are into bondage and there's often this moment, you know, where bondage is okay for little kids. You know, people play tie-up games, cops and robbers, cowboys and Indians, deeply problematic, but people used to play that. And then they become aware that their thing for being tied up means something more to them and something different to them than their friends' enjoyment of it as play, that it is more fraught for them. And they become self-conscious about it and less comfortable engaging in that sort of play with others because they don't want – because they feel exposed. And that's what your son is going through right now. He feels exposed and vulnerable because of his inability to control himself around other people's feet – and his discomfort exposing his feet to other people because for him they're sort of fetish object. Not sort of, actually a fetish object. So the way to get him to be more in control around other people's feet is to tell him he needs to be and that he must be more in control around other people's feet out of consideration for other people's feelings just as – you know, I'm sure if he's five or six years old, he's aware that some guys, some men are into boobs. He's probably seen TV shows where boobs are discussed, that some, lots of people are into boobs, but you don't make people who have boobs or, you know, who are wearing tight outfits feel self-conscious by staring or groping. And he can be told at five that you don't want to make people whose feet are exposed feel self-conscious about that by staring or groping. And that's not acceptable behavior, whether you're five or 10 or 30. Because he's five, this isn't a conversation you're going to have with him once. It's a conversation you're going to have to have with him again and again. You're going to have to reinforce the message and really walk a line. And you're going to really have to strike that balance so that you don't shame him, so you don't give him a complex. That balance being your feelings are valid and you there will be times and places that you can fully express them. Grandma's house, judo class, neither the time nor the place to fully express these feelings. 
You're not the only mom or dad out there who's parented a kid whose fetishes were evident early. If there are other parents out there listening now who navigated this difficult time between the emergence of the kink and the kid learning how to control themselves around whatever it is that they fetishized, give us a call. Share your story. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth, 25-year-old cishet woman living in the Northeast over here with a question about post-COVID coitus. All right, so here's the backstory. I started seeing a guy in December. He's awesome, and it's been a really great relationship, but we started off pretty casually, and then COVID happened. So I have been obviously in quarantine in my apartment by myself. I've been here for about 10 weeks now doing all the stuff you're supposed to do, social distancing, face masks, working from home, etc. Um, and I haven't seen him since the lockdown, but we're still texting and calling and video chatting and all that sexy stuff. Anyway, he is an, an essential worker. He works for a residential facility. And about two weeks ago, he was exposed to COVID at work started feeling shitty and then tested positive. So he's doing fine. You know, I've been checking in on him. Apparently it was a very mild case and that's awesome. He's already starting to feel better, but here's my question and concern. Um, when is it going to be safe for me to have sex with him again? So I've been keeping up with the news but there's just so much confusing information and there's new studies coming out all the time. And I know you've talked a lot about what you know and how that information is changing all the time. So I wanted to ask you, is there any possibility that he could still infect me once he, you know, is no longer symptomatic, has tested negative and all that jazz? Like, is it possible for me to still get COVID even if he's testing negative. And then if that's true, like how long would he be able to spread it for? Furthermore, do I have to wait for a vaccine in order to have sex with him? Like, do I have to wait 18 months before I fuck him again? Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, longtime Savage Lovecast medical expert, Dr. Barack Gaster, professor of medicine at the University of Washington here in Seattle. How are you doing, Dr. Gaster? Doing okay, Dan. Hanging in there. So this Doing seems right. to be a question that's going to be on a lot of people's minds going forward. You know somebody, someone in your life, or someone you just met who had COVID and is now recovered, now testing negative. What's your risk if you fuck that person? Do you have to wait for a vaccine? Can that person who had COVID but now doesn't have it anymore still infect you? What do we know? Yeah, this is such an important question. So good to sort of get this out there, um, which is that this virus is completely cleared from the body really pretty quickly, that um, it just doesn't hang around. There is no risk um, of transmission once somebody has recovered from a COVID infection. And we know enough about it already to, to, to say that, to make that statement, unlike HIV, which hides and hangs out in the body and can lay dormant and then be very hard to find in someone and then come roaring back if their immune system is compromised, if they go off their meds, this is different. Coronavirus is different. Completely different, hands down, safe, safe, safe. I mean, it's, this, this disease is so hard because there's, there is a lot that we still don't know. Um, and it is, it is what makes it so hard to contain is that it is very transmissible very early in the course of the infection. So when people have like barely any symptoms at the very beginning, it does look like they're very contagious. And so just so important that as soon as somebody feels like they are getting sick, it's so important for them to self-isolate themselves 
but we are now like so confident and sure that once this disease re- resolves, once people recover from it, there is zero chance that they are they, they remain infectious in any way. There was some question, and now there seems to be some data that, that's emerging, that whether or not a person can get infected again, whether or not having been infected and recovered uh, conferred some immunity on a person, and now it looks like it might or does. Yes, yeah. And I mean, so, you know, that's the even more, for, you know, for this person, the caller's question. I mean, even, so we are getting more and more confident as time goes on that once you have recovered from uh, a COVID infection that you are much, much less likely and maybe even immune, probably immune for a significant period of time after getting it. And so in terms of, you know, whether she should get back together with somebody who has recovered from COVID and is that safe, it's probably, it's like much safer to be with that person than somebody who hasn't had COVID um, because we do feel confident that that person is immune for at least a good long while. The particulars of her situation, the guy works in a residential care facility, and that's where he likely got infected, as we've seen in nursing homes uh, all across the country and other residential uh, centers. Uh, people are particularly vulnerable, and not just the, the patients, but also the staff. So th- that may be where he got infected. He could get re-exposed without be- getting reinfected, which means he could, you know, if he rolls into her apartment after a shift, he could have the virus on him physically and pass it to her without becoming reinfected herself. Am I gaming that out right? Is that a legitimate concern? No. Okay, good, <laughs> I mean, good. I'm I mean, really right. relieved. I mean, right. Yes, as long as he, like, you know, washes his hands and, you know, maybe if they want to be, like, extra, extra, extra sure but don't necessarily need to, like, always, like, you know, change his clothes, um, the the risk of, you know, carrying the virus on him in some way is just incredibly low risk. That's not how this virus is transmitted. And that's a change from what we, you know, everyone was you know, panicking, not panicking, like operating with the information we had at the time, that there were initial studies that showed the virus could survive on surfaces for some amount of time, yeah. which made yeah. handling a package delivered to your house potentially risky or, you know, picking up a box of carton of eggs in the store that somebody else had picked up and set back down potentially risky. And what we know now is that the risk of transmission from surfaces, from touching a surface that someone touched who had the virus is actually lower than we feared at the start. Is that right? That's right. I mean, we can't say that it's zero. And so, I mean, it's really important to wash our hands and not touch our face. But it is really primarily a a, a respiratory droplet transmitted virus in that people who are, you know, just really careful about uh, about just like routine infection control procedures um, are going to be a very low risk of getting it and very low risk of, uh, of you know, passing it along. And, um, and that really within 10 to 14 days of recovery from a COVID infection, there is zero chance of, of being contagious. And, you know, and there's all kinds of weird research about, well, well can't you still maybe detect like a little bit of sort of like scrap of RNA from that virus in seven days or 14 days after infection. Yes, but the odds that that is an an actual infectious particle is so, so, so low. And so for sure, like at the sort of 
10 to 14 day mark when somebody has been feeling completely well for three days, there is zero chance of them being contagious. So she can fuck this guy. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Bearing in mind, though, that she's bringing him into her pod. They don't live together. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. it matters how many people he's in routine, regular contact with. Uh matters how many people yeah. she's in routine, regular contact with. She could have him over and fuck him and then come down with it. She may assume that she got it from him, but she could have gotten it at the grocery store from somebody else going to the doctors or, or being on the bus or the subway, whatever. She's unlikely to get it from him. That doesn't mean she's not going to get it. And she needs to factor into their – they need to factor into their decision whether to get together or not other sort of knock-on risks that people are having to think about when it comes to social isolation and physical distancing. That's right. Yeah, we all just have to be aware of who our pods are and and, and that the pod concept goes beyond just like who are you living with you know, just your general kind of uh, social network. Can I trouble you to stay on the line for a non-COVID-related sex and health question? <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Dan. 33 years old, cis woman, bisexual. My question is, is there any danger to snorting cum I just had this like desire and had my partner was sucking him off and I love I just love cum and I love swallowing it and everything and I just wanted to have it up my nose and so I asked him to come in my nose and he did, and it was like a fucking, I don't know, shot of serotonin to my brain. Anyways, it was amazing. And I just want to know from one of your medical guest experts if I should be concerned about any potential negative side effects. So, Dr. Barack, I have given enough blowjobs to know that occasionally gets into your sinuses, right? But listening to this question, what it reminded me of were these cases where people used neti pots to rinse their sinuses, basically poured water <laughs> through their sinuses with a neti pot over the sink, which I think is disgusting and gross. And I don't want to do it. And got amoebas in their brains. They got they introduced amoebas into their sinuses that then chewed up and into their brains and they died using tap water. <laughs> Am I, worst case scenario, disordering this in some way, considering the numbers of times I've probably had semen in my sinuses, to worry that if you're snorting cum, you might get an amoeba in your brain that kills you? <laughs> oh, Dan. Oh, you, you like save these up for me, don't you? Like, <laughs> I actually save these up to remind people I am not a doctor and I have doctors on to prove that I am not a doctor. So my amoeba concern is probably not legitimate. Yes, but right. Neti pots are really, really safe and they're really effective and, and some people really swear by them and really um, help them a lot. But like, you know, oh, good grief. But I'm looking <laughs> at a headline right now. <laughs> Brain eating and the death highlights importance of safe neti pot use from January yeah, right. of 2019. This is what we were worried about before COVID was neti pots and amoebas eating our brains. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So yeah, neti pots are really safe. <laughs> um, and this gal. I don't know what to say to her. <laughs> Nobody knows. Um, it's probably safe. 
it's probably safe. I mean, we have to infer it's safe. If you've given blowjobs to people, you yeah. know, Brock, if you've given blowjobs to people who shoot huge loads, sometimes that stuff comes flying out of your sinuses, come flying right out of your nose. It happens. Yeah. And if it was, uh, if it killed people, we'd hear about those blowjob related deaths every once in a while. We have to infer. Yeah. It, it's, it's just the, the quantity that she's presenting us with here is, is, is different. I mean, our noses are really tough entryway to our body, you know, evolutionarily prepared to uh, protect us against like <clears throat> a ton of sort of crap that we're constantly breathing in that. Um, and so it's got all kinds of good kind of filters and sort of protective sort of barriers. And so the odds that this is safe is, is really high, but like good grief, just like the, the, crusty, gross quantity that she's <laughs> sort, of, sort of asking here is, 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 uh, is, is above my pay grade to really weigh in on as like, you know, big thumbs up because I don't know, but it's probably safe. You know, obviously risk of HIV and this would not be safer sex, but is it sort of in and of itself bad? Probably not. You're not going to drown it. But good grief. <laughs> don't, don't, why, do you, why do you ask me these? Uh, it's above your pay grade, but we like to, to trick you into tackling these questions with us because, because yeah. I, I don't know, you're, you're, the way you squirm, it's just so delightful. Even when you're not in the room with me, I can see you squirming in your seat. Dr. Barack Gaster, professor of medicine at the University of Washington, thank you so much for allowing me to still have your phone number. It's always a pleasure, Dan. It really is. It's fine. Hello, Mr. Savage. Prior to the outbreak and everybody going on lockdown, I started dating after a couple of years on just staying at home, just focus on myself. After a two-year relationship, which was a, an absolute nightmare, it was just miscommunication, uh, love, mixed messages. After two years of that, I pretty much said no more, and I started over again in Oklahoma. Well, anyways, I started dating again. I got stood up a lot, like maybe before the coronavirus, out of like say seven confirmed dates, I probably five people would stood me up. And one would even go as far as when she canceled, we were back and forth on the dating site. I asked her, well, would you like to start texting? And she replied with, sure. What do you want to talk about? Dot, 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 not. And it's very, it, it sucks. And I don't I want to know if anybody else deals with this, not just necessarily being stood up, everybody gets stood up, but the bad passive aggressive tone, like the bad, like, okay, I'm not just going to just blow this dude off, whatever. You know, I want to find that perfect person. I want to find, you know, someone I can spend the rest of my life with. And with all this, going on like the dating the passive aggressive being blown there's a part of me is just like i just want to give up and just live alone and just i don't know, find a cat or something my question to you and to everybody else is how do you guys deal with it because i don't know like it's bad enough i live alone i have no one to really bounces off to and i don't have many friends what do you what would you suggest i'm kind of a fan of the A-I-T-A, am I the asshole subreddit? I'm actually not on Reddit. I'm not a Redditor. 
but I follow on Twitter, am I the asshole, A-I-T-A underscore Reddit. And they repost on Twitter some of the posts people make on am I the asshole. And people, you know, describe a situation, they describe a circumstance. I did this, they did that, who's right, who's wrong, am I the asshole? And they get rulings from people who also are on Reddit. And sometimes they get intervention, sometimes they get a lot of advice, they get pushback, they get challenged on their shit if indeed they are the asshole seems to me that there could be, and maybe there is for all I know, Reddit is enormous. Uh, what am I doing wrong here, subreddit, where people could post after blurring out the identifying information about the people they were exchanging messages with, their direct message interactions with people on dating sites, if they're continually frustrated, if things continually go south, and could ask then all of Reddit, what am I doing wrong here? And have that gamed out for them. The risk is people will be cruel. People will be assholes. Sometimes the people on am I the asshole who are advising the asshole or making rulings on who is the asshole are assholes themselves. And it can be problematic and people can get sort of piled on and, and slapped around sometimes out of all proportion to their relative assholery. So you'd be taking a risk if somebody created what am I doing wrong here on Reddit and people could post these chats after anonymizing them so as not to get anybody dragged or make public anything that should remain private. Because that's what I think you need. You say you don't have many friends, but I think what you need to do is find a friend online or off, a real friend or a virtual one that you can show these chats to that you're having with women and ask them to tell you what, if anything, you're doing wrong. Some of what you describe getting stood up is just the price of admission for online dating. You're going to have a lot of interactions with people. You're going to exchange a lot of messages with people who may not exist, may not be who they told you that they are, may not actually be interested in meeting up or may determine after you exchange some messages that you aren't someone that they're interested in meeting up with. That's just the price of admission in that space, you just have to be able to roll with that and not take it too much to heart. You're going to have probably dozens and dozens of interactions with dozens and dozens of women before you go on even one or two dates with women who have determined after chatting with you that they are interested in meeting you in the flesh. And if that wounds you, if you can't take that kind of small bore rejection in stride, then internet dating might not be right for you. You're going to want to meet people the way people used to meet people through friends, at work, going out, volunteering, blah, 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 all those different ways. I think meeting online is better. The plurality, the largest percentage of opposite-sex couples now meet through online dating. Overwhelming majority of same-sex couples, 80% plus, meet online. One of the benefits of meeting people online, even if you have to deal with a lot of wasted time, and, you know, making small emotional investments in people who then determine that they're not interested in meeting you. And that's kind of annoying getting stood up like that. And it's not really what people mean by getting stood up. Stood up means you made a date and they didn't show. Stood up doesn't mean someone swapped messages with you on a dating app long enough to determine that they weren't interested in meeting in real life. That's just online dating. Forgot what I was talking about. Anyway, if you can't handle that, then don't online date. The The benefit and I think the superiority of online dating is – these are spaces that when people enter them, they are inviting you to flirt with them, to engage, to ask them out. If you're going to meet the old-fashioned way at work, volunteering through friends, you may wind up having negative face-to-face -face interactions with people who feel harassed by you, not by you specifically, the caller, by anyone. You know, It's better to approach people when they've hung out a shingle that says, now you may approach me. In this space, you may approach me. 
And that's online dating and that's certain kinds of bars and clubs. And we know what those bars and clubs are when we're in them. Not every bar, every club or every restaurant. So I'd encourage you to continue to online date. If you don't have a friend that you can send screen grabs of these conversations to privately, find one and ask them to review these chats. Maybe you're doing something wrong, something that you can correct for. And if you did things a little differently, you'd get more dates, more in real life follow-up dates after you have these interactions. But please don't regard this as anything special. You're not being targeted. No one's being mean to you in a particular way that people, men and women, aren't mean to each other online all the time. Get online, get online date. You have a lot of exchanges with people. Most of those people aren't going to want to meet you because they're going to figure out after a few exchanges, they're not interested in meeting you or, and maybe this is the ego protecting way to think of it. A lot of the people that you're interacting with online aren't who they say they are and have no interest in actually meeting. And that's annoying. But again, it's one of the prices of admission that we pay for this very efficient way to, uh, Meet people, date, hook up, have sex, and partner up. Hi, Dan, 31-year-old pansexual woman. My boyfriend and I had been dating for about 10 months until April when we broke up. The relationship was wonderful in many ways. Our communication was unparalleled to any relationship I have been in, and he is a very loving and kind person. However, I said from the beginning that I consider myself to be polyamorous and his anxiety about me potentially dating anyone else was often at the forefront of conversation, which I didn't mind at first, but was wearing on me over time. And it became clear that he might never be okay with me seeing anyone else. I'm also a very busy person. I run a business and enjoy spending time with friends. This made him feel that I didn't prioritize him and he often wanted more from our relationship and I struggled to give it. I frequently thought that if he could make new friends and take up some hobbies, it would be better for him and our relationship. Since breaking up, not a lot has changed. We still have sex and are kind to one another. We just see each other a little less, once or twice a week. We've been making a new kind of relationship, and it's felt pretty good to me, and he said that it feels good for him too. He has been making new friends, cultivating more hobbies, and taking good care of himself, all things that have been really nice for me to see. This weekend, he told me that he met someone on Tinder and they had sex and have started dating. He would like our relationship to look the same as it has, intimate and loving. The news that he started seeing someone else was surprisingly hurtful. I wasn't expecting him to be dating right now, and I feel completely confused about what my feelings are for him. Do I actually want to be in a relationship with him now that he is actively working on himself? Or am I just feeling hurt and jealous and need to take some time to sort through those feelings? Finding the answers to these questions wouldn't feel urgent before the coronavirus. I would continue to see him while he was seeing this other person, and after I worked through some of these initial hurt and jealous feelings, I might actually feel a little excited that he's dating someone else and getting some of his needs met elsewhere. Right now, the issue feels like I had counted on him as a safe person to continue to be intimate with during the coronavirus. We weren't quarantined together, but he's the only person I was sharing spit with. Now that he's seeing another person, do I need to stop having sex with him? I think what you need clarity on and you need to find this inside yourself is whether you were interested all along in being this person's primary partner, having other partners, perhaps him having other partners. He couldn't deal with Polly. 
you ended it, you broke up with him, and yet you continued to see each other once or twice a week and continued to have sex. Sounds like a relationship to me. And subconsciously or perhaps even consciously, were you hoping that he would come around on the poly issue and that you were still feeling him out as a potential primary partner? And now that he's dating someone else, you realize that you're no longer in competition or consideration for primary partner status, that that is something he's looking for elsewhere. And in dumping him because he couldn't deal with Polly, you relegated yourself to potential future secondary partner. And you don't want to be the secondary partner. You want to be the primary partner, but on your terms, which were poly. You wanted a polyamorous relationship where you were allowed to have other partners and he was going to be your primary. Hopefully you're not a hypocritical polyamorous person who what you meant by poly was I get to have other partners, but you don't. And doesn't sound to me like you're that kind of person. You sound a little too thoughtful and introspective to – be that. That's not polyamory. That's cuckolding or hot wifing or being a cut queen. So you need to sit with this. You need to ask yourself what's going on in your heart. What is it that you wanted from him? And what about him seeing someone else is hurting your feelings? Makes you feel unhappy. Perhaps him dating another person is going to bring into focus what you wanted from him all along, which again to me sounds like you wanted him to be your primary partner and you to be his primary partner. The polyamory you wanted was a committed relationship with him and secondary or tertiary relationships with others. That's still potentially on the table. He just started casually dating someone else. He hasn't partnered with that person. And if you want to go back to him with basically a new outline or a new structure for your relationship going forward, you're free to do that. And in light of COVID-19, if he's fucking other people, how big is your pod? How many people are you going to let in? How many knock-on secondary exposures are you willing to risk right now? If he is seeing other people and pursuing other relationships, swapping spit with other people, he presents a higher risk to you of bringing COVID into your life, into your apartment, into your mouth, uh, along with his spit, than he did before. Are you comfortable with that increased level of risk or not. And if you're not, you should stop fucking him. And maybe if you stop fucking him, he will realize that you're the person that he wants to fuck more and he will choose to just fuck with you for the moment. But of course you can't know in advance what choice he's going to make. Hi Dan, I'm a longtime listener of your show. Straight cis female in my 30s living in the Northeast and I have a question about life changes and porn that I'm hoping you can help me with. A couple of years ago, after giving birth to my son, I found myself totally turned off by porn, especially the typical genre that I liked before, which was BDSM. The bondage aspect started to make me feel weird and protective of the women. I tried watching other kinds of porn, but I was frustrated by having literally no idea what would turn me on in this weird new phase of my life. Plus, I found that all the moans and cries of the women just sounded to me like my baby boy, which totally freaked me out. Is this normal? Have other women dealt with this? And if so, how? The obvious answer would perhaps be to just have more sex with my husband, but it's hard to find the time when you're both exhausted. After about eight months or so, I recovered and I'm back to my usual porn watching habits. But now I'm pregnant again and I'm wondering if I'm going to have a repeat situation. Please help. You've been through this once. You had a baby. Your libido tanked. 
things that turned you on weren't turning you on anymore. Hormone surges, the sort of constant physical contact and exhausting demands of an infant left you in a libidoless state. And of course, porn didn't work for you then, your preferred porn. And throwing other sorts of porn at your eyeballs didn't turn you on. It wasn't that having a baby ruined BDSM porn for you. It just kind of ruined sex and intimacy for you for a little while. That's common. And you know that it came roaring back. Eventually, you passed out of the exhaustion stage and the clingy new infant stage and helpless new infant stage. And your interest in BDSM porn and the other sorts of things that turn you on revived. And I think you should just trust that that's very likely to happen again after you have your second child. Highly likely you will feel libidinous for a while, lose interest in sex, porn that had worked for you before will stop working for you for a bit. And you will become less exhausted over time. The baby will be less clingy over time. Maybe it'll take a little bit more time because you will have two children and that's going to up the exhaustion level, not by factor of two, but kind of going to square it by a factor of 10, but it'll come back. Trust it'll come back just like it did before. Hi, Dan. I'm a 23-year-old female living in Canada, and I've just been on the receiving end of a breakup about a week and a half ago, almost two weeks. And I just wanted to know any advice on how to stop hoping that they'll change their mind or come back really painful because this isn't a breakup that I wanted or saw coming at all. Just I came home one day after coming back from a drive and he had packed up and left and then ended things. And I have all these plans that now I don't know what to do with. Any advice to stop hoping every text I get is going to be from him or like hoping he'll be outside my door willing to change things because I know that it's over and I'd just really like to move on. You know, it's over in your head. Your heart hasn't caught up to your head yet. And it will in time. This isn't just a breakup. You didn't see this coming. And he did the living together equivalent of ghosting on you. You came home one day and he had packed up and left. That is a pretty traumatic breakup as breakups go. All breakups are traumatic. And as we've discussed in the show, sometimes they're traumatic for the person doing the breakup. Breaking up with people can be hard. Getting broken up with, much harder. But still, this was a traumatic breakup. And it only was two weeks ago. You're going to have to give yourself time. And you're going to have to feel the fuck out of your feelings, including these feelings of hope that he will appear on your doorstep, that the next text will be from him and that he will come back. And, you know, God rip out my tongue for saying this. Sometimes people do come back and sometimes, you know, people break up or disappear and then regret it or they were going through something that they didn't feel that they could share and they just needed some time away. My mother was briefly dumped by her fiance who then became her second husband and they were together for decades after that. And it was really hugely traumatic for her getting dumped like that. And and he came back. So that is a thing that can happen. I don't want you to live in false hope though. It is a thing that can happen, but rarely does. And the passage of time will let you know whether it's gonna happen or not. And all the cliches apply. Time heals all wounds. The quickest way to get over someone is to get under someone else. But it's also the accrual of new experiences that may, can make clear to you or make clear to someone that the breakup was in their own best interest because you may find yourself in six months or a year or two years 
in a new relationship with someone that you love who wouldn't be in your life if you had still been partnered to this person who left you two years ago. And you will be grateful, retroactively grateful for the breakup, however traumatic it was, because it has opened your life up to new people and new experiences that you will value. But that's off in the future. Right now, two weeks after this kind of traumatic breakup, you are allowed to feel sad. You are allowed to feel hope. You are allowed to feel false hope. You are allowed to eat ice cream. You are allowed to be a burden to your friends and, and, and bend their ears and call them in the middle of the night and ask for support or ask them to come over. And Well, not to come over. Ask them to open a bottle of wine at their place and you can open a bottle of wine at your place and you can commiserate together on the phone. You are allowed to have your big I got dumped heartbreak wallow. And I think it's best to lean into those wallows. I think it can be beneficial to throw ourselves at those feelings, to feel the fuck out of those feelings. In a way, we binge on those feelings until we're sick of them. And then something shifts and we decide we have to get out of that, that we're going to not stop feeling our feelings, but we're going to create distractions for ourselves. We're going to get out there and have new experiences that bring good things into our lives that help put the breakup in perspective and make us feel better about where we are now. And we can't be where we are now if we weren't where we were then. And one day you will look back on this breakup and feel so good about where you're at, feel so good about your life as it is now that you still won't be grateful for that trauma, but you will recognize the benefit that has accrued to you thanks to that trauma. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I'm a 33-year-old straight male living in Canada, and I'm having a real problem finding help for my post-orgasm sadness. I've been in a loving relationship for seven years, and we've been non-monogamous for nearly a year. The process of opening up hasn't been a cakewalk, but we feel so much closer and committed to each other than we ever thought possible. I've been physical with several women who I really enjoy spending time with, but when I orgasm with them, I consistently am hit with a huge wave of sadness and negative emotions, making me want to just up and leave immediately, and I don't want to be that guy. From what I've read, it seems similar to subdrop, and it's because of the amounts of prolactin my brain is producing or something. But I've tried asking for advice on subreddits and Facebook groups about it, but all I get is that what I'm feeling is post-nut clarity or jokes about not liking the person I'm with enough. The thing is, this feeling has been with me throughout my life. I used to feel this way after masturbating in my teens. I felt it with one-night stands I hooked up with in my 20s. And I only stopped feeling it with my current partner of seven years because she left the room immediately afterwards as we were roommates and fuck buddies first and then dated afterwards. I haven't felt the sadness with her since we first started hooking up, but with these new partners, it's hit harder than ever to the point where my mood and sex drive has been utterly destroyed for nearly two days. I'm very lucky that the women I'm involved with have been really understanding of the issue when I've talked to them about it, and they try not to take it personally, but it's not always easy when they notice the change in my demeanor. I feel broken. My current workaround has been avoiding orgasm for every encounter, but that feels like a temporary fix as A, the women I'm with want to make me come, obviously, and sometimes they aren't too keen on slowing down, and B, it makes sex less enjoyable for me as I'm far more in my head worrying about staying in control and not becoming this withdrawn, sad mess of a guy than staying in the moment and enjoying this amazing sexual experience that I'm lucky to get to enjoy. I'd appreciate any advice you might have. I wish I could have gotten you on the phone because I'd love to unpack your childhood a bit when you started masturbating, whether your parents were policing you or shaming you for masturbating, what sort of faith tradition you were raised in, because you had this problem, this sort of post-orgasmic sads, 
when you masturbated, you had this problem, one night stands, you had this problem initially with your partner until it became serious, until you got together, until sex was embedded in a committed and at the time monogamous relationship, you had this problem. And of course, it's not a physiological problem. If you can come with your partner and not be overwhelmed with sads, it's not that you're blowing all the dopamine out of your body along with the spunk, that there's something going on for you psychologically, not physiologically. And that's all about the meaning and importance that you attach to sex. And if you were shamed and some boys uh, and girls, but also boys brutally shamed by their parents for masturbating, a girl can masturbate and not leave a lot of evidence. Uh, most girls, many girls don't masturbate as adolescents. Uh, almost all boys do. And you know, when a boy jacks off, there's a crusty sock or there's a crunchy tissue paper. There's often evidence that parents stumble over and some boys are shamed by their parents in subtle ways, sometimes in absolutely brutal ways. I'm curious whether that happened to you. If you were made to feel bad by external forces for pleasuring yourself, for experiencing pleasure, for having orgasms. If you were told that it's only okay to have an orgasm with somebody that you love, that orgasms have to be in the context of a committed monogamous relationship, that shit is A, a lie and B, insidious. And it winds its way into people's reptile brains and can really damage them. And I'm my hunch is that you were one of those people, maybe, that perhaps you were shamed for masturbating, shamed for sexual pleasure. That was its own reward that was disconnected from some larger meaning or importance from a larger relationship. Because when you have sex in the context of a relationship, you don't feel this way. I would encourage you, if this is the issue, to try to reframe sex for yourself, to reason with yourself, to argue with yourself about what it means. I just told somebody they need to feel their feelings after a breakup. And in a way, I'm telling you not to allow yourself to feel this particular feeling, to challenge yourself when you feel this way, to not succumb to the sad, to, to, to push back against these feelings, that your orgasms with these other women, and I hope you're being safe in the light of the pandemic and you're not hooking up with randos and you have some people who are in your pod or you're living with that you're taking a calculated rational risk and protecting your partners and protecting yourself and maybe you're just having sex with your partner right now, I hope. Anyway, that when you're with these women and you want to come and after you come and you begin to feel this slide that you verbalize it, like, ah, I'm feeling this, but it, I don't need to feel this and I'm not going to feel this. And then you throw some distractions in your own way that you turn on the television that you and your partner, rather than being laser focused on these feelings, turn your attentions elsewhere, get out there and do something, be, go be physical. You know, you say this lasts for a couple of days, a refractory period, most men's refractory period, particularly when they're young men like you is just hours. So your desire for sex or your horniness should kick back in physiologically sooner than it does and that is not kicking back in again this is something that's going along in your head this isn't chemical it's not about happy hormones and sad hormones and, and dopamine and oxytocin it's not about that it's about meaning it's about how you frame and understand sex and it can help if you have this sort of uh, attachment that sex is about a relationship it can help to tell yourself that sex is about relationships and about intimacy and about one of the ways we as social animals 
connect with each other. It is legitimate sex, sexual expression, pleasure, orgasm in the context of a long-term committed relationship, in the context of a casual long-term open-ended relationship as with your other partners. It is legitimate in the context of a short-term relationship if everyone is being considerate, respectful, and it's consensual. But that shared moment of pleasure, even if it's with somebody you just met and are never going to see again, you've created more joy in the world. You've created a moment's connection that brought two or more people together, and it is legitimate. And I think that's the argument you need to have with yourself, the legitimacy of your own pleasure in these moments with your other partners, that it is as legitimate to feel pleasure with these other women safely as it is to feel pleasure and give pleasure with your primary partner. All right, before we get to your response calls, I am going to read some of your tweets. The notorious KGB tweets, hey, at Fake Dan Savage, the governor of Michigan is Gretchen Whitmer, not Whitman, as you repeatedly called her on the Savage Lovecast this week. Thank you, KGB. Thank you, Pet Store Stu. Thanks to everyone who wrote, tweeted, and called to let me know that I screwed up Governor Whitmer's name. I looked at my notes and I had Whitmer written down, but Whitman came out of my mouth. Don't know how that happened. Apparently, I was thinking cheap dime store chocolate when I should have been thinking kick-ass Midwestern governor. My apologies. Thomas Bird tweets, hey, Savage Lovecast, my friends and I were wondering if there is a name for Eiffel Towering someone under the Eiffel Tower. Could you please put this on your show for listeners to respond to, please? I can't imagine Nancy's going to play responses about this, but I just wanted to say I prefer the term spit roast to Eiffel Tower. But if you're Eiffel Towering someone under the actual Eiffel Tower, that's just public sex. And I'm pretty sure it's a crime, even in Paris. Lucas Snyder tweets, the Savage Lovecast vibe lately is very, Dad, if I finish my chores, can I play with Dave? Except chores are public health and Dad is fake Dan Savage and Dave is a sexy wild card. Thanks for being internet sex dad, Dan. You're welcome, Lucas. If you want me to read your tweet potentially on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls. Hey, Dan. I wanted to call in response to the caller you had last week who was uncomfortable using the language of slavery in her Dom Sub play and also the interview that you did with Blackson. I think Blackson is super interesting and it's great that you had them on the show. But I also think that in assuming that all master-slave play is playing on race, you've made a really big assumption. Slavery is an institution that has been part of human societies since the beginning of time. There were slaves in ancient Mesopotamia and Egypt and Greece and Rome. And I know that we live in America, and America has this terrible institution of racialized slavery um, that obviously we cannot overlook because we live here. The legacy is so powerful in our society today. But to immediately jump from master-slave kink to racial aspect is overlooking all of the kinksters who are engaging in master-slave play and eroticizing different slavery institutions. I'm white, and ever since I started having dirty thoughts about this shit when I was a teenager, all the slaves have looked like me. I would say my kink is focused on, like, the ancient world, like ancient Greece, ancient Rome, 
something about that. I don't know. I can't explain it. It's weird. But it doesn't play directly on race. Not all kinksters who use the language of master-slave are engaging in a racialized form of kink play. Hey, Dan, Nancy, Tech Savvy Youth. Uh, this is a response call to the woman whose uncle's girlfriend did some porn. I'm honestly just kind of disgusted by the whole interaction that she had with her long-term family friends. These men definitely watch porn. Uh, they definitely found this video watching porn, and nobody seems to be noticing that the consumption of porn is what has actually caused this. It's not the doing of it. So the whole thing is just completely misogynistic and backwards, and I just... I just, these don't really sound like friends, um, because they're using one woman, shame another woman. And that is just a classic male misogynistic move. So I don't know if these are your friends, girl. Hi, I'm calling for the woman in the last episode who matched with someone accidentally on Tinder that she was not interested in. And I just want to say you're making a huge problem out of nothing. Most people that I match with on dating apps online either never say anything to me or we have a short conversation and then one of us never continues the conversation. You can just ghost. You said you put your foot in your mouth, so it sounds like maybe you already said something to this person, but you can just stop the conversation in preferably the nicest way possible, or just like never answer or just unmatch them. It's really not a big deal. When you unmatch with somebody, the conversation just goes poof and they kind of don't remember what happens. It's great. Thank you so much for all of your great response calls. We value all your contributions to this show. Speaking of this show, I will be doing Savage Love Live this Thursday, June 4th, with all proceeds going to Feed the Hungry here in Washington State. Join me, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth for an evening of your cues and my A's, this time on Zoom and live. You can email us your questions in advance at livestream at savagelovecast.com, or you can send them to me live during the live stream this Thursday evening. Evening, go to savagelovecast.com slash events to buy your tickets. And again, all proceeds go to Northwest Harvest. This is a fundraiser to help out people who are struggling here in my home state, Washington. Please join us this Thursday night for Savage Love Livestream. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you would like to record a question or a call for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Better yet, you can record a question using the Voice Memo app on your phone and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. There are a few more chances for you to see my dirty little film festival hump now streaming. You can see it this Saturday, June 6th, and next Friday, June 12th. Go to humpfilmfest.com to get your tickets. And if you like Hump, the folks who put it together have put together the Confinement Online Film Festival. Feature funny, weird, and poignant films about all of our adventures in lockdown. Go to cough.tv, that's C-O-F-F TV, to get your tickets. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with our installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.